welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about Black Panther, who just had a new comic come out last week and is going to be appearing in the upcoming Captain America Civil War movie. Uh, Black Panther, I would say, is one of Gav's favorite fictional characters of all time. Would you agree with that, Gav? Super fave, Morgan. <laughs> yes. Uh, so we're going to be discussing Black Panther, the character, and his sort of history in Marvel Comics. We're also going to be discussing the new comic, which was written by ta Coates, and get into the new film a little bit, or as much as we can speculate on before it's come out. We will obviously be returning to this in a couple weeks' time when it does get released. Yeah, that is Civil War rather than the Black Panther movie, which is unfortunately yes, a thousand yes. years away. <laughs> yes, tragically, that will not be coming out until 2018, which is a source of constant anguish to both of us. Um, so I thought we could start by me basically interviewing Gav about Black Panther, since she has read basically all the Black Panther comics. Is that right? Have you read all of them? I have read most of them. There are some periods in the, the kind of the 80s that are quite hard to get hold of. You have okay. to buy like a big hardback book or search for back issues. And I, meanwhile, despite my uh, obsession with superhero movies, don't really read comics. I did read the new one, but I am relatively ignorant of this topic. So uh, I thought we could go through this way. Gab did write a great sort of uh, history of Black Panther that we'll link to in the show notes, but we'll go through some of that here too. But I thought we could start by basically just saying for asking for people who may be listening to this without much information about this at all. Uh, Gav, why don't you explain to us who Black Panther is? Well, he's the king of Wakanda, which is a fictional African country uh, in the Marvel Universe. And kind of Wakanda has its own superhero origin story uh, in that it was hit by a meteorite full of this mineral called vibranium, which is what Captain America's shield is made of. And it's super valuable and it allowed Wakanda to kind of manage that wealth and develop lots of technology that other countries don't have. And like in order to make sure that like Wakandans retained control of that vibranium, they became quite isolated. So they've developed this really advanced society, which kind of operates quite separately from the rest of the Marvel world. And the king, who throughout most of the comics, that's a character named T'Challa, who's the character who will show up in the movies. He's from a royal family, but in order to become the Black Panther, you have to pass a series of trials. So it's kind of a bit like with Thor and Mjolnir, where Mjolnir is like, you know, I choose you, Pikachu, you're the best. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a really good like intro to Black Panther comic from around 2005 that I'll recommend in the show notes, where it's kind of like, it begins with the kind of tournament where they're getting the best warriors can like fight to see who can be the next Black Panther. And like a really huge muscular guy almost beats the current king. And then someone in the crowd is like, don't worry, there was like a literacy exam. Uh, so it's like <laughs> they go through these like trials to make sure they're like a good leader and a good strategist and a good person. And then the final trial is um, more spiritual. They're judged by the Panther God um, of Wakanda, who then kind of gives them powers. But on like in like kind of world shattering standards, like it's not like Superman type powers. He has kind of a similar strength and agility level to Captain America. So like superhuman, but not like very powerful. And he also has fantastical powers, like he can find people's souls and he can commune with the world of the dead and stuff. But like his power is more to do with like his political power as strategist and a diplomat. Um, and like his symbolic power as the, as the leader of Wakanda. So he's kind of like a combination of king, like military general and like the pope. Okay, so when, when did this character first appear? Um, and then 
why don't you go through just like a brief history of the greatest hits of him in the comics? Okay, so he kind of showed up in the 1960s and he was like a guest character in Fantastic Four where he's basically introduced, but like he calls the Fantastic Four to Wakanda, which is like the first time anyone's ever heard of this. Because it's the 60s, it feels very much a product of its time in that like a couple of the characters are just like straight up racist, but it's also kind of written that way in the text of the comic. So um, Ben Grimm, the thing, the guy who is just like a giant rock man, is sort of like, how did this Tarzan guy get hold of a spaceship? And he like can't even conceive of the notion um, that like, you know, like an African leader could have more advanced technology than America. Simultaneously, is like challenging the audience's expectations but it's also acknowledging that like this audience of 1960s comic readers they're kind of thinking oh this is probably some quite racist white people who are used to reading um like what were then known as jungle comics which was like all white people like tarzan uh, who are kind of running around in like leopard print leotards <laughs> he gets a solo series in the 70s which is very much like the kind of psychedelic adventure stories like there's a long period when it was written as a slightly kind of black exploitation comic, but like I'm not really qualified to like talk about that because uh, like I don't know a great deal about like black exploitation media at that point, and also like I'm a white person, so there's some stuff I'm going to be hopelessly clueless about, and we will link to more qualified people in the show notes. Um, but yeah, there was kind of like a slight element of like white guilt creativity coming from like a you know an optimistic place, but maybe not being super clued in. Um, and then after like 20 years or so, like in the 90s, it got like a much more modern reboot where a writer named Christopher Priest really made it like a lot more serious comic about international politics. And, you know, he's like a cool late 90s character who like goes to nightclubs and is really badass. Um, <laughs> I actually don't like that run very much because it's told from the perspective of an American NSA agent who I think of as like the Jar Jar Binks of Marvel Comics. He's just <laughs> <laughs> he's just constantly talking and it's like I want to see what Black Panther's doing <laughs> get rid of this NSA agent the point where I think it becomes truly really interesting and they really delve into the things about Black Panther that are kind of complicated and like emotionally interesting are is kind of the late 2000s so you know there's a storyline where he um, gets married to Storm of the X-Men which is a really interesting relationship where she becomes queen of Wakanda by his side but obviously she's not from Wakanda um and then, yeah, in the late 2000s, uh, his sister Shuri takes over as Black Panther and he's kind of deemed unworthy. So there's like a long period when he moves to New York and takes over like Daredevil's job. And then once you <laughs> reach the 2010s, it just becomes so complex and deep. There's a lot of really interesting like moral quandaries that they're dealing with because you have this story where the main character is a king of a country and he has to decide, do I kill another planet to save the planet that my country is on? Because that's my duty as a leader. Jonathan Hickman's Avengers and New Avengers run from the from like 2013, I would highly recommend, but it's quite heavy going. Yeah. Um, well, the the new comic seems like there's going to be some some pretty heavy stuff too, but we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, first, I wanted to ask you some personal questions, Gavia, or really just one personal question, um, maybe a couple. Uh, so we've been talking about Black Panther for quite some time now. I don't mean on this podcast, I mean in real life. And by we've been talking, I mean you have been talking at me about Black Panther for quite some time. Um, but I realized when we were kind of planning this that I don't actually know when you got into it. I just know that you love him 
a lot. So I was kind of wondering when that happened, like how you discovered Black Panther and then like what about him or the, the story like speaks to you so much because I know that you really, really love it and react to it and cry sometimes when reading it. So <laughs> I mean, I feel like it was kind of figurative Tumblr crying. Like when you're like, oh, yes. gee, I'm crying. <laughs> Not like full like magic tears, which happens very rarely. Yeah, I think you can hear like the tolerance in Morgan's voice here, but like that is why the podcast is called Overinvested. At some point, you're going to do an episode for something where I'm just like, I don't understand this. I'm culturally illiterate and it will be Morgan's turn. <laughs> um, regarding like my introduction to Black Panther, I really don't have like a super interesting answer to that because while I read a lot of comics as a kid, you know, I didn't have any money. So like I wasn't buying comics as a series. I was just reading whatever was in the library. Um, and I think I must have seen Black Panther as a side character in group comics, but it didn't really gel with me. And I kind of somehow by accident got into him two years or 18 months ago and then just kind of find myself digging through, you know, Wikipedia being like, which ones are the best? Like, I've got to read through like the whole timeline and wind up just becoming like really embroiled in this character. And I'm just trying to think of like the reasons why I like him so much. The superficial reason that is why you kind of gel with any comic book character is just the immediate like excitement of really thinking a character is very cool and exciting to look at. The Black Panther costume is really badass. Like I like the way his fight scenes are drawn. Um, I like him for the same reason that I like Batman. But then like when you dig a little bit deeper into that, I think it's like a very interesting and unusual story in the context of superhero comics because like he is technically a superhero but he's working on a different scale to most of the other characters. Every single one of these stories is about power and morality. Obviously, like, the one to start with there is Peter Parker and Spider-Man, who's, like, with great power comes with great responsibility. And kind of the whole kicker for Spider-Man is that he doesn't have great power. He has, like, very minimal power, like, on a general structural scale. Yes. Like, he can, yeah, he can lift people up with his spider, like, thread. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> he can he has catch... more power Pedro than us. Yeah, he but... has... He has a more lot power. Less power than Iron Man. <laughs> yeah, so and he, but, yeah. but because he's so used to like growing up as just like a nerd with no money, always like, struggling with his job and like his love life, he's suddenly like, I have so much power. So he's incredibly concerned about that, and he's always like very concerned about being morally good and like he's very much a kind of helping little old ladies across the road character. Whereas Tony Stark has no superpowers, but he's like grown up immensely rich and also very clever. The whole philosophy behind that character is that he's. A futurist and he wants to change the world and he wants everything to like advance really quickly he's the weapons manufacturer equivalent of like a san francisco tech bro who's like i'm gonna invent like a thousand apps that will improve everyone's life and then people are like you realize you haven't done any like sociological research into whether these apps are gonna help and by that point tony stark's like but i've got a thousand robot drones the robot drones are gonna solve everything and that's how you get age of ultron where like a city is falling into middle eastern europe and it's a disaster you know he doesn't have much responsibility attached his power and then in the middle you've got like the x-men who have phenomenal superpowers but because they're a small minority the only way they can like solve their problem of being oppressed would just be to go to all-out war which is kind of the central conflict of x-men do they go to the war with the humans or not and like with t'challa i find like his power and morality conflict very interesting because it doesn't really run along the lines of a lot of other heroes um, because he's the sovereign leader of a country. So he frequently has to kill people, but it's not depicted in the same way as anti-heroic characters who have to kill people. So like, if the Punisher kills someone, it's like, oh, he's an anti-hero. 
he's not super troubled about it and it's it's purposefully a violent comic about someone who's meant to be morally ambiguous and with T'Challa he definitely feels the moral weight of having to make a decision that results in people's deaths but if he has to do it for the good of Wakanda he's like this is what I have to do there was a really great sequence in one of Jonathan Hickman's New Avengers comics from like a couple of years ago when he has to make a decision that will lead to like millions and millions of people dying on another planet in order for earth to survive and all of his like forefathers come to him as ghosts and are like what are you doing like you have to do this it's the only decision and he's just like as a human being i can't make that choice well let's bounce off of that to the new comic which i think is clearly going to based on just the first issue delve into a lot of those those ideas so we have, again, just the first issue from ta Coates, who, as many of you probably know, is not known for writing comics, but for his journalism, where he has written about things like housing policy, mass incarceration, reparations, uh, and his recent book, Between the World and Me, which is about race in America. Um, so he was announced around a year ago as doing this, and you actually predicted that. When the announcement came out, I then got like a tweet from someone at Marvel being like, where did you hear this? And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> the one and only time I will ever know enough about a topic to be able to like put something together from context clues. <laughs> so based just on like that piece of data, I think everyone could was pretty, you know, certain that there was going to be a lot of deep political stuff going on in this comic. Um, although he has kind of been joking on Twitter for months and months that he was just going to be writing like a dissertation which is not what the comic is which is not a surprise and is also good but you know as someone who is broadly familiar with the character but not with any of the specifics and doesn't really read comics that often or really ever I sort of reading it and we're going to get into some spoilers here because because it was it's such a sort of short amount of stuff there's not really much of a way to discuss it without yeah i mean it's it. the first issue of a comic so like even if you haven't read it like spoilers are not a tremendously yeah. big deal you're fine yeah. but uh the way it kind of read to me was an immediate critique of this system of uh monarchy essentially right so it opens with a riot at the vibranium mine that t'challa and his like guards are basically putting down um, and things go on from there, which we can get into, but this is not kind of an endorsement of the political system that is clearly in place in Wakanda. Um, and it was, that's really interesting to me because ta Coates clearly is a huge fan of this comic, which, you know, A, he's talked about on Twitter for years, like before having gotten this job, but also even as someone who isn't familiar with the mythology of this character, it's obvious that he knows what he's talking about from reading it. Like there's so much detail. So the question of like, how do you engage with something that you really love and also critique it at the same time as the person who's sort of taking over is really interesting to me. Um, but you obviously have a lot more sort of expertise about the, the detail of what's going on here. So what were some of your thoughts about it? I mean, I think you've covered like really well the central conceit of the story, which is in this country, which has so much power on the world stage um, and has like an incredibly long history of never being like defeated or invaded. 
why do they have a monarchy as a system of government? It's a monarchy that's like organized by, not organized by, but it's like the king is chosen by the panther god. When I was reading the comics, I was like, of course the panther god chooses him. But like in the real world, not everyone is going to believe in the panther god. So like, while this isn't something that's come up in the new comic yet, there is definitely going to be people in Wakanda who are like, that's not a real thing. <laughs> of course, like, of course, you're just like, why are you believing the panther decided that this guy's going to be king? Like, I mean, people who've seen him use his superpowers would be like, sure, okay. It's this interesting kind of contrast between having a monarchy and being like a country in the modern political stage. And the reason why it works so well now in like the timeline of Black Panther is because when Wakanda is first introduced, it's in the 60s, but like chronology being what it is, T'Challa is basically the same age, like 50 years later. Um, but when he's first introduced, Wakanda's had almost no interaction with the rest of the world. Over the course of like the last 50 years of Marvel comics, it's become like more and more involved in the world stage. And that's partly been because T'Challa as the monarch has been like, we can't avoid this. You know, the internet exists now. You know, we have to be more involved in a global scale, even if that means interacting with countries like America that are governed by people who make a lot of terrible mistakes constantly. <laughs> but that's also had like an obvious knock on effect. So like in the past 10 years of Marvel comics, Wakanda has been invaded by aliens. Uh, he's been invaded by Fox <laughs> Doom. T'Challa has been deposed by his own sister, who by this point in the comic is now missing. And also the Golden City, the um, the proud capital city of Wakanda, was destroyed in a flood by Namor, the king of Atlantis. So they've been through like a ton of catastrophes. First of all, the people of Wakanda are just traumatised, which you would be if you've been through like that amount of war in such a short space of time. But also it really damages the cultural identity of Wakanda. It's like a place that's never been invaded and never been beaten. You now have like a kind of uncertainty about the idea of being a superior, like more advanced country. If you're like, well, if we can be taken down by this stuff, you know, maybe this isn't the best system of government. We need to like change things to deal with these problems. We can't just rely on this one guy. That's kind of what the new comic is about. They're examining it in really interesting ways. The most interesting is the number of female characters they have in the main cast. Yeah, I was, I had sort of heard that, but I was impressed by the extent to which that was true. I mean, basically everyone who speaks, except yeah, like him. All the main characters are women. And that's partly yeah. because like most of the traditional male characters were killed off. <laughs> they all died like in the past yeah. 10 years. So like one of the most interesting things about this comic and also perhaps the most surprising if you've been reading a lot of um, Black Panther comics is the prominence of the Dora Milaje as main characters. Okay, so first of all, they're um, the elite team of female bodyguards who are basically like accompany the Black Panther anywhere. Um, and like they've always been depicted as really cool and badass. They're a really interesting concept. Also, like, in the canon of Black Panther, they are traditionally described as wives in training. And, like, T'Challa is not depicted as someone who's, like, perving on his bodyguards. They're generally treated with respect, but they are scantily clad young women who are kind of in, like, this semi-harem situation. And that's one of the things that Tanahasi Coates was very critical of when he was reading through the Black Panther comics before working on this one. Um, instead of just kind of retconning it and making it different, in the first page, it like visually acknowledges the history of those characters. So they have like one of the Dora Milaje in her traditional, basically like a metal bikini outfit, which as everyone knows, is a ridiculous warrior outfit. Um, <laughs> really protects you from- Yeah, it's like, it's great if you want to like protect your nipples and like literally nothing else. Kind of this flashback to like when the bodyguards as a team were like, we can't stand by you T'Challa, we have to move on and be with Shuri instead. So like you already have this backstory of them maybe not being as loyal to T'Challa as perhaps they would have been in previous generations of Black Panthers. 
And in this story, because of all this like political upheaval, we see the captain of the guard. She either, I think it was like she attacked or killed like a, a local leader who was preying on women in his town. Um, and for that, she's sentenced to death by T'Challa's stepmother, Ramonda, who is kind of this uh, like elder stateswoman of the country. This Dora Malache uh, leader, Anika, then gets sprung from jail by her girlfriend, who is another one of the bodyguards. And so kind of the, the interaction they have, first of all, it's like incredibly good art from Brian Stelfreeze. Fries. They have this amazing page where um, they're completely black shadow outlines, apart from the glowing kind of cyberpunk electronic stuff, like the nodes they have in their heads. So like, it looks amazing. And it's also this like really tender poetic scene where you, you just get really succinctly like, an idea of their relationship and how it kind of relates to their duty to the country, because they're clearly very deeply in love, but they've never like truly been together openly as a couple because they're aware that like their chief duty was to be bodyguards to the king and to serve Wakanda. But now they're like, we don't know if we can trust the king. And also like Wakanda is not the country it was before. So we may as well just treat ourselves as dead women and just do whatever we want. And what they want to do is fight for themselves and follow their hearts and do what they think is right personally and morally. And it's like, it's just a really interesting setup for this comic to go on because like there's no strong villain in that dynamic they're the good guys black panther's kind of the good guy the people who are rebelling are also yeah cool. and the sort of like what figure who seems to be the leader of the rebellion who is as yet quite mysterious is also a woman and what i think is going to be interesting is like how to maintain black panther's status as a good guy right like obviously he's not going to turn into a villain and that would be stupid but the tension of maintaining and interrogating that i think will probably be one of the interesting things about the comic because again this is being written by someone who clearly loves this character and loves this sort of story but like there shouldn't be a king <laughs> that's a bad system of yeah. government like don't do it um and I think we have discussed this uh, before, but it seems sort of likely just from the story hints that he's dropping in this first issue that the ultimate outcome of this run may be that this system of government is, will not survive, um, which is very interesting way to take something that has essentially been in place for decades right um so it'll be interesting to see where where that goes um and how he winds up writing that or if we're totally wrong i'm not the kind of person who's like i really want to predict what happens next in the story because it's a waste of time but i think that's the way this narrative seems like it's headed is you know the question of should someone who's been chosen by a panther god be in charge of an entire country it's like maybe not which is not to say that like t'challa specifically is not a really good leader because throughout the whole history of the comics he's a very good leader he makes decisions that like while sometimes they result in dangerous consequences it's not stuff that he could have foreseen so like he personally is a good leader who's been through hard times but you can't always have that with a monarchy which is kind of the point yes. the thing that i'm really curious about um with this book is like whether T'Challa himself actually wants to be king because I think he, yeah. he wants to save Wakanda and he like I think he likes being the Black Panther in the sense that he likes being a superhero and he has like the correct level of responsibility to utilize those superpowers but like whether he actually wants to be a national leader is kind of a question mark well yeah even just 
from the this sort of early stage, the ambivalence about that seems clear. Um, he doesn't seem super enthusiastic about what he's doing. And if that role includes like putting down a riot of his subjects who are all clearly very unhappy and who are working at a mine, like I can understand why that maybe would not be an incredibly enjoyable job. (laughs) Like that doesn't sound like a great time to me. And in those couple opening pages, which are really stunning, I mean, the art is incredible he says something like you know like these are my children and i'm supposed to be protecting them and like this is now the position that i'm in and sort of like what's happened um and yeah so the the tension there um both from a sort of political perspective but also from a psychological perspective from the character is complicated and it is works especially well if those two things are overlap right? Like that's when you get a really good story is when all of that stuff comes together as opposed to just like political pontificating, which is what he was joking about doing on Twitter. Yeah. So is there anything else we should say about the comic before I move on to the upcoming film? Um, I'm certain there are many other things that we can say about the comic, but um, we should move on to the film to avoid this podcast being two hours long. Yes, exactly. So T'Challa is going to be in the upcoming Captain America film, which is coming out in a few weeks and just actually screened for critics, which we're very jealous of because we want to see it now. Um, You will be seeing it a week before I do, which is incredibly unfair. Uh, I'm going to have to be off the internet for a week, as I think we've already mentioned on this podcast, because it is a great source of trouble to me. Um, So we don't have an immense level of information about what exactly that appearance is going to look like yet. But we can kind of speculate and then talk a little bit about um, the future film that he's going to be in uh, in 2018, uh, the solo film, uh, and sort of the business perspective on that, which we think is pretty interesting. So um, we do kind of know in Civil War that he's going to be a little bit of a free agent. So uh, Civil War, uh, for those of you who aren't paying attention, the the five people who don't know this already, uh, is basically a sort of political conflict between uh, Tony Stark and Steve Rogers. And then Black Panther appears um, for the first time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we're told he's not really on one side or the other. So that's going to be very interesting in terms of how he relates to these other characters whom we've mostly known for quite some time. And I think one of the things we've been talking about is the sort of relationship of these movies to America versus the world at large, right? And Black Panther obviously isn't an American character. Um, And they have not always done a great job of being international. And a lot of the the stuff they're dealing with are specifically kind of American issues, which is fine. But I think that's going to be an interesting element sort of brought in and potentially complicating the stuff that they're talking about, which just has a lot to do with surveillance, et cetera, in, in this film, as far as we know, since it hasn't come out yet. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's, it's going to be really interesting to compare to Age of Ultron, which was marketed fairly heavily as like the first really international Marvel film, uh, partly in terms of like the narrative where they have this set piece in Sokovia and they introduce Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch as young Eastern European like revolutionaries almost. Um, and also in terms of the way they marketed it, they were like, you know, for example, they were courting um, South Korean audiences by like filming a large sequence in Korea. 
but like they basically screwed it up like quite heavily so there's like <laughs> yes. several different international like scenes the one that was filmed in korea where they i think they actually got government funding as part of you know appealing to the local audience thing like i don't think that was positively received by korean audiences in the end because they were like we don't feel like you've given much personality to like our city there was a scene in iceland or something where i was just like i don't even know where this is right now are we still in korea <laughs> and there was like the worst part was definitely where they go to the coast of africa the african, like, coast. The african coast the which african is just coast. like there's like a whole continent there <laughs> so um and they like trashed a city which like confused people a lot because like a lot of people were like is this meant to be wakanda it was filmed in johannesburg i think but like it wasn't labeled on screen the ethics of that scene are just like a complete mess. Basically, the Hulk and Iron Man just level half of a city. And then it's like, what are you? Just destroyed, like, buildings. You've probably killed people. It was like the Man of Steel of the Marvel yes. franchise. And it just went unexamined. Um, whereas I think a lot of that was a combination of Joss Whedon was having, like, a lot of personal issues, like, writing that movie. And it turned out as quite a mess, as most fans are probably aware by now. And also, like, kind of studio input trying to make this an international film and failing. Whereas this film has more of like a narrative backbone because the idea of the Superhero Registration Act from the comics has now been turned into the Sokovia Accords. So it's kind of focusing on this Eastern European fictional country from Age of Ultron. And that's where there's kind of international treaty about superhumans is going to be written or discussed or whatever. So that's like an interesting way to introduce Black Panther and Wakanda as like a political figure rather than a guest character on the Avengers team. Yeah, and then... That will he may be in a couple he may be in a couple things between now and twenty eighteen. We have no idea. Marvel <laughs> owns all these people until they're dead. Um, but uh the solo movie is coming out in a couple years and they've got Ryan Coogler who just directed Creed to do it, which I think we're both pretty excited about, big fans of Creed over here um but this is a really interesting direction for marvel to take because they have historically not really chosen directors who are especially interesting as directors per se i think that's a fair a fair characterization to make um yeah, whether and i mean not... kind of definitely like kind of the most individual filmmaker they've hired so far is edgar wright and that like very publicly went up in flames with that yes Man. yes it did I mean, James Gunn in Guardian of the Galaxy is clearly has a yeah. a distinct vision, um, but I don't like that film very much. <laughs> yeah, I think we're being unfair because it's James Gunn, actually. He is probably the most individual. Like, I think also, like, Thor, the first Thor movie, is reasonably original, but, like, a, a lot of that is production design. Yeah, but, I mean, I think with that one, like, I think Kenneth Branagh is a very effective director, but from a... And, the like, the production design is obviously very distinct because... Asgard is very distinct, and also all the other um, first phase uh, Marvel movies compared to that are, like, not, you know. But in terms of, like, the cinematography of Thor, or, like, the, the visual look of the film itself as opposed to just the production design, like, there's nothing interesting going on. It's very, it's competent, it's fine, but, you know, he's a hack. It's it's all good. He's, he's an effective hack. Um... He did Cinderella, like, make your money, it's, it's, it's all good. But uh, with the exception of James Gunn, like, they really do not, to my mind, have a good track record of picking interesting people, and I think that's one of the major problems with their kind of, like, artistic project, if you will, right? Like, 
they I think my my sort of characterization of their movies is that they tend to make really good like B plus movies on average. I think some of them are better and some of them are worse, but that's like the sort of median of what they're doing. Um, and they limit themselves because they generally avoid taking risks artistically. And that tends to pay off because all of their movies make a gazillion dollars. So like good for you, but as a viewer who's interested in cinema, it can get a little boring. Um, so even like Captain America Winter Soldier, which is a film we both love and I think is really successful in most ways. Um, and the directors of that film, the Russo brothers clearly understood that character and all the characters in that film and the relationships and did a really good job in a lot of ways. Like, I think the actual sort of um, cinematic direction of that movie is just, like, not good. Like, the cinematography is sometimes fine. It's sometimes, like, actively bad. Like, I can remember a couple of shots, like, in my mind right now where I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> like, the, the, not, action, the action scenes are very good. divisive because I found quite a lot of the action scenes I didn't, um, like, I felt like I couldn't appreciate them because they were very fond of close-up, shaky camera work. And it's like you cannot see the fight choreography with that. And they clearly, like, they talked so much about how much effort they had put into the fight choreography. And I could kind of tell that that was true. But at the same time, I was like, I don't know what is actually... And it's, it's kind of like, hopefully, like, people can tell. We love the Rosa Brothers as filmmakers. But I think, like, kind of that cinematography question it definitely feeds off um, their experience as filmmakers. Because they, the bulk of their work has been in sitcoms. Especially stuff like Community. They, they clearly know, like, a great deal about like narrative structure and they've been working with writers who are very kind of genre savvy and they're both quite geeky very like analytical people but in terms of the visual design artistically of a film sitcoms are not somewhere where that really is an issue broadly that kind of lack of experience is something that they share with a lot of filmmakers who get hired for franchise films in general at the moment and also yes. marvel especially because like there's a great deal of this demographic of white guys in their 30s and 40s who have made some tv or they've made two or three low budget somewhat well received but not super beloved indie films or sci-fi films and then get hired for like these colossal 200 million dollar features and it doesn't always work out no so the obvious example of that was josh trank on fantastic four who made chronicle which was a very low budget uh, sci-fi movie that people did actually love. So at least yeah, in it was that a really case, interesting like, film. it was yeah. right. Like, it was very well received, but then he got put on Fantastic Four, which was like the most amazing disaster. I haven't actually seen it, but I mean, at some point we may do a Fantastic Four episode. <laughs> yes. Get ready for it. Um, but I mean, it was panned, like no film has been panned in my Memory. And also, it was like, like it was simultaneously like this film does look legitimately bad, and you're also kind of like you shouldn't have put this much pressure on a director who made one film that was very successful at like 26. Right, and he's only a couple years older than we are. Like this is not this is just not a wise choice. And he had also been hired to do the third Star Wars movie, and then got shuffled. They off. parted ways, and then hilariously hired to do. Like, hired in his place was Colin Trevorrow, who got hired to do Jurassic World after making, like, one or two tiny indie movies. 
So it's just like there's just an endless cycle of these people, and, and that, that and that definitely like that's the reason why that's so jaw clenchingly frustrating with regards to Black Panther is you know these studios have got to the point now where like when they've started diversifying the the heroes they're making films about, they're like we're gonna make you know our first ever like black protagonist, our first ever female protagonist, and because of like thankfully like the level of public pressure, they do actually understand that they need to hire a female director, they need to hire a black director to make these films. And then there's like a full year of, you know, the Hollywood Reporter or whatever, like listing the same like five directors because there's so few directors that are seen as supposedly qualified. And it's like Ryan Coogler won the Sundance Film Festival Best Picture Prize for like his first movie. So he's like this really accomplished director with two very well received films under his belt. And he's at like the same level as someone who's made one and a half really shitty low budget movies and is now getting given Spider-Man. And for female directors, it's like the same situation. Well, it was, I mean, the whole thing with Black Panther is really fascinating to me because they went after Ava DuVernay initially and she was in talks with them for quite some time. And, and then that would eventually... just like an insane coup because like to have like, right. a, a, like to have a prestigious director like that working on like this type of franchise film. Right. And she eventually said no, because I think she explicitly publicly said it was, it would have been a Marvel movie, not an Ava DuVernay movie. And she was nice about it, but like you know, she has other stuff to be doing. Like she, she has enough sort of cachet at this point. Um, and then they snatched up Ryan Coogler, which I think is a good move from both of them. He's still very young. Um, you know, they look good because they got him, but it was, and I think it's, I'm excited about that because I would much rather them hire directors who actually have proven experience and are clearly talented. Like if they did that with every film, great right like that's better to me but the fact that they were clearly just like what successful black director who's been in the press recently can we find and meanwhile like sony is hiring for spider-man like i don't even know his name his name is john watts and i only know that because i googled it beforehand but like yeah very pop car at sundance which, like, before it even came out, they had hired him. And then, it like, no one watched that movie. Who is this guy? What? Like, and, you know, I don't, I don't think that people at that level should be getting hired for movies with $100 million plus budgets, regardless of who they are. Like, I don't think the solution is okay, we have a black director who made a film on a $1 million budget at Sundance and we're now going to give them Black Panther because you could have a Josh Trank situation where they just have a total fucking meltdown and it's a mess. But there should just be some level of parity here, right? Like everyone needs to be treated the same, but that, as we know, is not how Hollywood works at all. Um, But it's the the whole thing is just very frustrating in, in many ways. And it will be I'm going to be really curious to see if he manages to make a film that feels distinctive or if it winds up getting sucked kind of into the Marvel hole, because um, I actually don't. I, I like Fruitville Station, which is his first film. Fine. I don't think it's amazing, but he also made it when he was like our age, quite young. And then I think Creed is great. And from a director for directorial perspective, like really, really impressive. And it's also so, really interesting, like as a film that's part of a franchise, because like yes. he's taken, you know, it's the, the final Rocky sequel. It acknowledges so much about like what made the first Rocky film just like a masterpiece. 
and then it updates it like it examines the racist subtext of the franchise he puts his own you know his own visual personality on the film while retaining stuff that was good about rocky like he works with this really interesting cast you know it's the same type of cast as well that you get in a superhero movie because you get this like young like hot up and coming actor and then you have the old grizzled guy as the mentor which is like the formula for all of these films so like yes he's like he's like he has like the exact correct experience to be working on a film like you know any superhero film right and then the question becomes like are they going to let him actually like do that the obvious comparison here right is star wars they just dropped the trailer for rogue one which is directed by uh gareth edwards whose other stuff i haven't seen but who's generally regarded as very talented director and like you can just tell from the trailer maybe i'll be proven wrong by the whole feature i hope not that it's very visually distinctive and they also hired um ryan johnson to do the second sort of like main main star wars uh like now new trilogy film who has a really distinctive visual style and they tried to get josh drank and then had to replace him with colin trevorrow which I'm not, yeah. jurassic not world man for those who do not recognize that name he made jurassic yes. world but kind of regarding rogue one i think i'm reasonably optimistic because like it's a star wars movie and like the force awakens was so phenomenally good but kind of regarding like the visual style um i think that's just a lot of that can kind of you can thank the fact that they've got the infrastructure of Lucasfilm behind it and they already have like this team of people who work on Star Wars films you know there's a lot of kind of design stuff which but there's a gonna difference get between movie. that and like cinematography I mean I don't know how much I've been trailer about. yeah I, I there are a number of shots in that trailer that stand out as like actual shots in a movie like the shot of her in the hallway with like lights behind her, the shot with the guy with the cloak, like walking forward. Oh yeah, that's true. Like the there... hallway, I just got distracted because I was like, oh my god, it's the Hunger Games. <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, this is a trailer. Obviously, we don't know, but the fact that they made the effort to like hire actual like people who have proven experience as directors with visual styles, as opposed to Marvel who went explicitly in the opposite direction for several years i mean a lot of that's kind of just the difference between like kathleen kennedy who's kind of the powerhouse behind the star wars franchise at the moment and then like kevin faggy who's in charge of right this is my exact point like he could have done that and he didn't um and again like this is kind of back to what we were talking about with batman v superman right um although (laughs) say what you will about Zack snyder he certainly has an aesthetic that he sticks to um (laughs) Like, these movies all make a ton of money. So what they're doing works, right? Like, it, they are successful in that way, and that is ultimately all they need to do. But it's a little depressing to me that given how successful they are, they haven't been more willing to take risks. And I hope that Kugler is able to do that, although the DuVernay stuff is not encouraging to me. Like, and we've talked about this with the, um, the sort of story structure too. Like most of these films all follow a very similar story structure. I mean, the thing like, that makes me quite concerned about, I mean, I'm not like super concerned about Black Panther because I have a lot of trust in Ryan Coogler to make a film that will like be artistically interesting. But I think in terms of like the plot structure, um, unless it was just a fake out to introduce this character in Age of Ultron, like it seems like the villain 
is going to be um, Ulysses Claw, the character who's played by um, Andy Serkis. He's a bad man with a claw for a hand, and like he killed, <laughs> he killed um, Black Panther's father. And like possibly he'll be the secondary villain, which I would very much prefer. But like if they're setting this up as like a film that's about one man kind of taking down the man who killed his father, you can make that interesting in like a Shakespearean story way. But I feel like the way that Black Panther would make his mark compared to like the huge like wealth of other superhero movies at the moment is if they focus more heavily on Wakanda and also on kind of his role, his duties as a world leader. Yeah, which would be great, but I, I worry about yeah. that, right? <laughs> but also it's like there, you have this sort of like, there are, all of these films have a very predictable kind of like scale and scope and sense of conflict. So like, you know, at the end, there are going to be a bunch of big explosions that cost a fuckload of money. And that's why all of these movies cost like hundreds of millions of dollars. And like, we have wondered why like Marvel could make anything and everyone would go see it. Right. Like they could make a movie for $50 million. That's kind of different. And they would still make a ton of money. On yeah. It. And like, we've been having this conversation so, now for like five years. Cause it's like, yes. there's also like a lot of Marvel properties that are very well suited to making a low budget film. The Hawkeye comic that was like a huge yeah. hit, like past couple of years. Or like Ms. Marvel, which is like modern equivalent of Spider-Man, you know. You can make these on a low budget and they would be like much quirkier and more interesting than like Ant-Man, which was competent but just did not need to exist. <laughs> but kind of regarding Black Panther, what I'm really interested to see in terms of originality of filmmaking is to what extent, if any, the comic has an effect on the movie. Because like it's not going to be an adaptation. One thing that I found like quite telling when this film came out, uh, when um, Ta-Nehisi Coates' and Brian Stelfreeze's comic came out, um, was there was this interview with, I think it was the Washington Post, which was with Axel Alonso, who's the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. And he was kind of talking about, you know, it was a promotional interview, so he was talking about how exciting it was um, to have, like, you know, this creative team working on Black Panther. And he was talking about, like, the process of hiring Coates, who's not written a comic before, to write this comic. And he was saying when like they were first in contact and Coates pitched his idea, which was like, you know, just a kind of general idea about like the politics of uh, Wakanda. Axel Alonso was like, well, you know, I kind of tried to discourage him because I don't think, you know, there's a concern that people will not find that story engaging because like it doesn't fit in with the US based, New York based world of comics. And it feel like, it'll feel like it doesn't have like an impact, which to me is just like mind blowing. Like, the idea that he would actually, like, voice that and kind of admit to saying that, it's disrespectful, like, towards the readers of the comics, even. Like, yeah. it kind of is just saying, you know, no one can handle a story that isn't about New York. And it's like, there's a lot of, there's, like, first of all, there's a lot of stories in New York already. Like, we don't need, like, another comic where, like, Black Panther comes to New York and, like, punches someone in the face. Um, yes. And also, like, there's a lot of people who are, like, now being introduced to these comics who are not in America. Yeah, <laughs> you know, live in America. Most people don't live in New York. Yeah, as is someone who does live in New York and consequently thinks New York is the center of the world because that's what all New Yorkers think. But like rationally, I do know that's not true. <laughs> like, and just like the the idea that that might happen with a Black Panther movie is just 
if you can set films in space, <laughs> there's like there's really no good reason for you to be like going out of your way to like take a character who is like he's African, like his whole story is about like being king of a country in Africa. And the comic has like a really deep history with like African American readers in the US and that kind of thing. Like you don't ignore that in favor of making Ant-Man 3 starring Black Panther. <laughs> We cannot divine these people's choices. Yeah. It's best not to try. <laughs> oh, despite the fact that's what we do with all of our time. Uh, so I think that pretty much wraps it up for this week. Do you have any any further last minute thoughts you would like to add? Um, I can't think of any right now. My main thing I would like to say is that I hope, having listened to this podcast, if you weren't already a fan of Black Panther, first of all, thanks for listening all the way to the end. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to us talk, mostly me. <laughs> uh, and I really hope that, like, you kind of have a better idea of why he's such a cool character. Like, I have, like, a lot of comics recommendations for, like, different eras of the comics, if people want any. I've made, like, a reading guide, which we're going to put in the show notes. Um... Yeah. Yeah, so a, a lot of this stuff we've been talking about is going to tie in with our topic next week, which is a new sort of lower budget sci-fi movie called Midnight Special, which is out, I believe, both in the US and the United Kingdom, um, directed by Jeff Nichols, uh, which I think we both found interesting but did not love. Uh, Very interesting. And also, yeah, yeah the, the the director also directed, I've forgotten the name of the previous film with them. Um, Take Shelter and Mud. Yes. He, he directed both of those. Um, so yeah, I would I recommend checking it out, even though I didn't love it. It's interesting and also the kind of film that I feel is worth supporting since it costs like $20 million and not $150. Um, and there's some great acting in it, but we will be uh, back here next week to discuss that film and also the, the Hollywood machine which is our favorite topic so <laughs> thank you for listening and you can find us on twitter at overinvested pod on tumblr at overinvested podcast our website is overinvestedpodcast.com uh, we are on soundcloud itunes and stitcher and if you would like to leave us a review or rate us on itunes we would really appreciate it thank you so much for listening Bye bye